Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for an in-depth conversation on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And today we're going to revisit some fairly controversial sermons preached by a Baptist megachurch pastor, Andy Stanley. Uh, So this is kind of a change of pace for you and I, Father Miles, but I think one that's necessary, uh, given our mission statement, is to engage issues prevalent in modern culture. So Andy Stanley, uh, he he has deep roots and name recognition in Baptist circles. His father is a pretty well-known Baptist pastor, and so he has a pretty large platform. And he recently uh, preached a sermon series titled Aftermath, and it's about how the Bible fits into our faith and how the Old and New Testaments work together, or to maybe summarize his argument more accurately, don't work together. And... We're going to have the links in the show notes to those sermons on YouTube so that you can go watch them. If you have no idea what we're talking about, pause now, go watch them, and then come back so that you can kind of follow what we're doing. But probably most people heard about these sermons when they were preached because on Christian social media and on Christian news outlets, this was really a a highly discussed topic when it happened. So probably a good chunk of you remember, but if you don't, go listen to them and you uh, you can catch up. Now... One caveat that's important as we get into the conversation, he did come out with a book that's kind of related to these sermons called Irresistible. We are not defending, critiquing, talking about Irresistible. We've not read it, and I don't think that we'll probably take the time to do so. So there may be some things in the book that he says that are even worse or even better than what we talk about that he said in his sermons. We're just not going to go there. So his first sermon was called Stand Alone, and he begins with the premise, and this really cuts back to the episode that we did a couple weeks ago now on nominalistic ecclesiology, because his whole premise that he begins this sermon series with is that they want to be a church that resists things that makes the church unnecessarily resistible. So basically, this is—it reminded me of Thomas Jefferson's statement that you— you go with the flow on issues of style and, and non-substantive issues, but then on issues of principle, you stand firm like a rock. Uh, so they want to they wanna be able to decipher what areas are important, essential, substantive, and then what things are stylistic, and they want to do away with those stylistic things. And he purposefully mentions things like worship style, mm-hmm. church architecture, and uh, it, all of these things. I mean, if you've ever looked at Andy Stanley video or his church, North Point, then you know it is just the epitome of the seeker-friendly megachurch. I mean, it is a, it is as far from classical Christianity, other than like non-Christianity, than you can get, Right. And so this is what he's thinking of. I think what these sermons will show, though, is he's getting to a line of actually changing those fundamental principles. Absolutely. And that actually goes into kind of the point of what he's talking about, which is the Bible, uh, which he argues is, is authoritative for Christians, but it is not foundational for Christian faith. Mm. The basis of Christianity to Stanley is the resurrection. It's an event. It's not a book. And so the Bible didn't create Christianity. Christians compiled the Bible. Which, ironically, at this point, he's actually being very Catholic. Oh, yeah. Very small-c Catholic. I mean, this is just a good argument that I've heard Lutherans and Anglicans and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox give that what the foundation of the church is is the gospel, which is an event, not, not the Bible. The Bible, though, 
is the the uh, the apostolic witness to this event. And I think that might, we'll get to the critiques later, but I think that's part of already, he's setting himself up of pitting the Bible against the apostolic event or witness of the event of the death and resurrection. Why would you do that? Anyway, that's the question I had as I was starting the sermon. I was like, I would never want to pit those two against each other. He definitely makes a bit of a mess here and doesn't always do the work to tidy things up. So we'll get into yeah, that sorry, here in a few minutes. No, that's okay. I understand. It was pertinent to what we're talking about. So because he because he makes this distinction between foundation and, and basis and, and authority in Christianity, he is heavily critical of a kind of biblicism that's prevalent in modern conservative evangelicalism. And I think rightfully so, and we can talk more about this later, but I think I think that there's some truth in his critique of kind of fundamentalist readings of Scripture. But the problem to Stanley is that these kind of readings don't hold up under scrutiny from people like the new atheists, like um, like uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett, the, that group of people who I didn't know people really still cared about, but apparently they do. So then in this series, uh, Point. Oh, go ahead. The people who care about it, as he even says, are high schoolers on YouTube. That's true. <laughs> that is true. The internet trolls. And then after listening to these sermons, I got on Twitter and I saw a tweet that said, Hey, everybody, I watched a YouTube video. I'm now an atheist. And it was some Catholic <laughs> priest. He was joking as if your faith is so flimsy that a YouTube video will collapse it. Sure. But I think Andy's he's responding against something. People's yeah. faith is collapsing when they s- watch a series of YouTube videos. So I get why he's saying this. That's true. So as a result, he turns to the book of Acts, ironically, a part of the very scripture that is not the foundation of our faith, to find out what the first Christians did base their faith on. So he goes through, in the first sermon, Acts 1 through 5, basically Peter's preaching, um, showing that it was almost entirely experientially based. It was based on what the apostles had seen and what they had heard and what they had touched and felt, very much like 1 John 1 makes the claim. So this strategy, the strategy of apostolic kerygma, that is the preaching proclamation of the gospel, he thinks is a much more convincing strategy than a sort of fundamentalist apologetic-based approach, which, again, I think there's a lot of merit there. And we can think of what does he have in mind of like a, a fundamentalist or biblicism approach. I think he has in mind something like an answers in Genesis type of approach to the Bible, which he even mentions a few times creation or the seven days. I think this is what he's responding against. People who say, if the Bible doesn't, if it says there's six days of creation and we can't articulate it perfectly, wonderfully in science, then the Bible's not true. I think that's what he's going after. And he probably should go after that. If you, like, if, you're, if your faith crumbles because of evolution, then you, that's not good. You've put your faith in the wrong place. So I'll give him credit there. And then it's all downhill. So his second sermon, he begins by discussing how the church started out with a Jewish identity. But then as new members came in, the church had to kind of reconcile with these new outsiders, Gentiles, and how the church began mixing and matching covenants. So the Judaizers would be an example of this, forcing Gentiles to effectively become Jews in order to become Christian. So he distinguishes the two covenants. The old covenant was the Mosaic laws given to Israel. And then the new covenant was Jesus with the world for salvation. And so in this sermon, he explores Peter's dream of the unclean animals. And then his encounter with Cornelius, who was a Gentile. 
to show that a shift away from Jewish particularity to gospel universality. His argument is that the old covenant was a means to eventually get us to the new. So God used the Jewish people and used Israel uh, in order to inaugurate this new covenant in which the whole world could be reached. And again, I think that there's a lot of good in that particular point, and we could talk more about that in a minute. In this sermon, he explores... Um, he, he calls out modern Christianity, where covenants are often mixed and matched, urging us to observe the sharp distinctions that keep the new covenant from the old covenant. So this involves, to Stanley, reimagining sin for, from a way of, from a sort of wrath punishment perspective, to a view that sees it as heartbreaking because sin breaks people. And so he calls out Christians who want to do things like uh, put the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn because they are merely the table of contents for the Torah. So they're bound up in this kind of Judaistic law in the Israelite people. And so they don't really have much application for us today. They don't belong to us as Christians, is his argument. Right. And so the the example he gives is this obscure law in Leviticus, might be numbers, where if two men are in a fight and the a wife of one of the men walks up, she has kind of, and she grabs the offender's pretty much genitals and crushes them, she can be stoned and the, and the verse says, show her no pity. Or at least the NIV says that. I'm not sure what the Hebrew or the King James says, the ones that God wrote. <laughs> That's a joke. We just laughed. Sorry. Um, but in, his point is saying that if the Ten Commandments are the table of uh, contents for all the law, then you can't just take those ten. You have to take all of them, including that one. Are you going to post that one to the court of law? Why only the first ten or the summary of the law? And He's getting at something real and serious, and which is how do Christians approach the law? This has been a huge debate for the past 60 years in the church. He, I just don't think he does it well. But uh, Yeah, and there's definitely a lot to critique here. I, I think he's parroting an objection that you do often hear from the kind of new atheist camp as well. For example, for more fundamentalists, type Christians, I think they have a tough time explaining to you why something like homosexuality might be considered sin. Because to them, the reason homosexuality is a sin is specifically because Leviticus condemns it, and then Romans 1 seems to also condemn it as well. Um, now, I think that it is a sin, and I think those verses do point us in the right direction. I think you can make a natural law argument about why it's wrong that's much more robust and really cuts to the heart of the issue. But you'll hear when when homosexuality comes up in the public square, the progressive kind of antithesis to this perspective will say things like, well, should we also not eat seafood or wear, or should we wear tassels on our clothes as well as a, as a way to kind of cut past the, the harsh language in Leviticus um, and, and kind of making a similar point to what Andy Stanley ends up making here. Um, so I think that's an interesting parallel, but let's move on to his third and final sermon. Father Miles, what did you have to say about that? I just wanted to say that he ended that second sermon very much on a cliffhanger of saying the Ten Commandments don't belong to Christians. That was that was a very powerful point that he then returns to later. So just please keep that in your mind. The Ten Commandments do not belong to Christians. And then he goes on to, uh, to this third sermon. And the third sermon, I don't know, I'm being critical this whole time, but here we go. This is what I'm doing, is that his entire motive he sets up at the beginning of this third sermon is really, he says, to save people who have either left the faith or in the process of leaving the faith because of something that's in the Bible. He, he believes that the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, might be one of those things that he set out way at the beginning of the first sermon 
that is an unnecessary stumbling block to coming into the faith. Uh, he believes that that if we would have been taught rightly about the place of the Bible, people wouldn't be leaving. And so ironically, in my mind, in the end, he ends up creating this form of biblicism where it's all about a right understanding of the Bible. Whereas the whole thing he's trying to argue against is the Bible is not the foundation of the faith. If you could just understand the Bible not being the Bible, then maybe the Bible wouldn't cause you to stumble over the Bible and you'd be a Christian. Yeah, it is It is a bit absurd at times. Sorry, in, so go ahead with that's the third okay. sermon. In the third sermon, he zeroes in on the Jerusalem Council, where the church defined a Gentile's relationship to the law of Moses. At least that's how he frames the findings of the Jerusalem Council. So he says God has done something through the Jews for the world, but the through the Jews part is now over because Jew and Gentile can both be incorporated into the church, into the body of Christ. In Acts 15.11, he quotes where, um, where James is the one who says, we believe it is through grace, just as much for Jews as for Gentiles. And so this really proves uh, Stanley's point. Christianity isn't Judaism 2.0. Jesus wasn't an and. He was an instead of, so it's not Jesus and the law, it's Jesus instead of the law, which is a nice pithy kind of Baptist sermon uh, technique, I think. So therefore, his argument kind of comes to its pinnacle by saying that the Old Testament isn't a source for behavior in the church. The New Testament moral obligation is less complicated than the Old Testament moral code, but it is more demanding. And he doesn't really flesh out exactly what that means. I'm assuming he's looking to Jesus's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount where he elevates the law. So it's not just not committing adultery, but it's not even looking at a woman. I, I assume that's what he means. So I'm not sure because he actually says in the third sermon that our ethic isn't based in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm with you. I'm not sure what he's pointing at. I assumed he was pointing where Jesus says, you shall love your neighbors. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love your neighbors yourself, which is, if that's what he's thinking, and I'm not sure, that would be so wholly ironic because Jesus is quoting the law. I, I do think there's something in that last sermon where he's trying to, he's trying to construct an ethic that's very Christocentric and cruciform. The problem then becomes what exactly that means. And like we're saying, I mean, it's kind of vague and leaving the sermons, we don't even understand really what he means by that. So perhaps maybe something he addresses in his book a little bit better, hopefully. Hopefully someone caught that. So nevertheless, his main point, and this is the part that got the most explicit backlash, was his statement that the New Testament church has become unhitched from Jewish scripture and that Jewish scripture is the backstory, but not the main story. Okay, so those are the three sermons of Andy Stanley. Like we said, if you have more questions, you should go watch them or don't um, because they are they are kind of long, probably 30, 40 minutes each. So but anyways, uh, so then how do we feel as ordained Anglican clergy about this? And I think this is kind of an interesting uh, Rorschach test because I think, Father Miles, you are a little bit more antagonistic to what Stanley is saying than I am. Um, so because of that, I'll go first as far as presenting some critiques of Stanley, and then you'll present some critiques of Stanley. And then we'll talk about maybe some things that he does well. Uh, and then at the end, we'll answer the question, is Andy Stanley a Marcionite heretic or a an expositor of the Apostle Paul? And we'll explain what Marcionism means as well as, as we get closer to that. So 
Some things that I think that were really poor about these sermons. I think first, his whole project has a seeker-friendly veneer that constructs an altar upon which the beauty of traditional sermons, church architecture, aesthetics, and liturgy are sacrificed to the gods of cultural conformity. I mean, right from the get-go, he tells you his goal is to make the church as a appealing to as many people as possible by stripping away those things he deems unnecessary and incites many of those things that I just listed as things that do make Christianity unattractive, which is interesting to me because the more I talk to non-Christian people about Christianity, the more that they feel as though megachurch style seeker sensitive approaches are patronizing to them. So the fact that they they feel like people are catering to them is a turnoff. So one of my best friends, for example, is a non-Christian, and he has a friend who's a megachurch pastor who's always trying to get him to come to the megachurch. And basically what my non-Christian friend has told me, he's a Unitarian Universalist, but he said if he ever wants to go to a Christian church, he'll pick something that's either classically Lutheran, Anglican, or Roman Catholic, because he gets it. He gets that that's where real, true, robust, rich Christianity is. He doesn't want the shopping mall style commodification Christianity. So that's my first kind of critique. I think the whole project has a tinge to it that that is problematic from the get-go. The second thing is that I think he has an unhealthy alarmism about preserving our modern way of doing church. So in my view, our modern way of doing church, the sound show, the smoke the smoke machine, the lights, the worship band, the pastor in skinny jeans and a button-down collared shirt, that whole way of doing church really isn't something that can or should be fixed. And I think if you want more about that, you should go back to our episode on nominalistic ecclesiology. I mean, I think the only way of fixing it is to get rid of it and come back to a more traditional approach to Christianity. But his ecclesiology is weak. He doesn't have a good theology of the church. And then he marries that with this kind of hyper dispensational theology that's intent on really skipping over a lot of beautiful things in the Old Testament. And he sees no real connection between Israel and the church. And so I think that it it causes him to have this kind of alarmism to save something that shouldn't be saved. So then another critique, and this is kind of small, but I think he gives new atheism way too much credit. You know, I I mean, like you said, besides high schoolers on YouTube, I'm not really sure who's listening to Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett anymore. I thought David Bentley Hart took care of them in his book, uh, The God, The Atheist Delusion. I mean, he really takes them to task. And, and most people, I think, have gotten away from a hard atheism into a kind of softer spiritualism, spiritual but not religious, the nuns kind of thing. So they're not even, there's, in fact, it may even be easier to witness to if they're, if they have such a strong position of being atheist, but it's harder because there's a kind of fluidity uh, where people really aren't anything. All right. And then my other, uh, my other critique is that uh, I I thought the sermons were too Barthian without the good parts. (laughs) So what do we mean by that? Uh, Karl Barth is famous. There's a story about Barth where he was preaching in a church and he had his Bible and he threw the Bible down the center aisle and he said, this is the word of man. And then he picked it up and he smoothed out the pages and he kissed it and he said, but this is the word of God. And what Bart is kind of 
arguing against, much like Stanley, I think is a is a kind of he, he's against a kind of biblicism and fundamentalism that was prevalent in the mid 1900s. But at the same time, he argues that that scripture really doesn't contain everything that we need. Rather, the experience, the proclamation of the gospel does. And so, you know, Christ is not bound up in a book. The true word of God is Christ in flesh. And uh, and so the scripture is helpful. It's a tool. It points us to that reality, but it's not in toto uh, the reality. So so I thought there were parts of what Stanley was saying where I think maybe his revel- revelation about Old and New Testament and how they fit together may have even come about from reading some Karl Barth just based on the way he was talking. But at the same time, I thought the way that Stanley articulated himself, there really wasn't as much good. You know, I, I'm not a huge Barth fan, but I can read Barth and appreciate a lot of what he says. Uh, I didn't appreciate as much from Stanley as I as I do from, from someone like Karl Barth. Do you have thoughts on Karl Barth, Father Miles? That's another episode. That is another that episode. That is another episode. I understand, yes, his Bartian kind of leaning, whether he's read Bart or not. This makes sense of kind of the notion that the Bible contains the Word of God as it is experienced within the community of faith, but it in and of itself is not the Word of God. That's at least what Bart said, but then Bart does exegesis in his uh, dogmatics. He treats it like any other conservative, right? I mean, he treats it like it's the word of God. He's not trying to dismiss it. So, and I would imagine Andy Stanley does the same. Like I'd imagine Andy Stanley, if he preached a sermon on the Old Testament, which after this series, I'm not sure if he ever would, I would imagine he would treat it much like the word of God. Well, he does make the argument it is the word of God. It's just that it's not authoritative to the Christian. Whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So uh, another thing Stanley does is he argues that the reason that the Apostle Paul initially felt as though he could be violent and persecute Christians is because the Old Covenant taught him that violence was an acceptable reaction to people who disagree with you. Okay, now I think that that is an oversimplification. There's a lot in the Old Testament about caring for the poor, about caring for the outsider even. There's um, there's a lot of laws that pertain to how to treat those outside of the community. Um, and I also think we have to be careful here because Christ does make the argument that the law and the prophets point to him. And because those things point to him, his kind of oversimplification of the law teaching violence then creates a problem if you're saying Christ is kind of the fulfillment of all these things. Well, if that's true of the law, then it must be true of Christ because Christ fulfills uh, what has come before. So I think he needs to explore areas of conjunction between Old and New Testaments rather than just disjunctions, uh, which is what most of his sermon is, is just straight up disjunctions between the two, um, which are important and we do need to study those. But the conjunctions also shed meaning onto Christ and Christianity for sure. I also think that in dismissing the Ten Commandments, he really doesn't discuss the Sermon on the Mount like we were just talking about. The The Sermon on the Mount takes the commandments and elevates them to a higher level. Uh, so it's true. It is a little bit more simple now uh, as far as, you know, it's not just you, we don't have to sit around and parse when something becomes adultery or when it becomes a murder. But it is harder to follow what Jesus says during the Sermon on the Mount. I think that Stanley would have done a better job had he distinguished between universal moral and natural laws and cultural laws. So for example, Deuteronomy tells us to build a it tells the Jews to build parapets around their houses. Obviously that's not a an abiding kind of 
practice. Neither is marrying your uh, your bro- dead brother's wife, like we talked about in the King Henry VIII uh, discussion in the first episode. Those aren't ongoing, capital T, true, embedded in the universe things. But not murdering someone, not committing adultery, not lying, not uh, coveting. I mean, those are all universal truths, whether the Ten Commandments says them or not. They're ingrained in the universe. And so we need to make those distinctions. Yeah. And I think that what you're pointing at is probably the overall largest critique we might walk away with from this sermon. It just lacked any sense of nuance about these pretty difficult and complicated issues to just carte blanche wipe out two-thirds of the Bible and the Old Testament law. That's just a really poor approach to theology. And it, anyway, I'll get to my critiques in a moment because I think that that that's just has huge implications pastorally, right? We have to remember this was not an academic uh, lecture. This was sermons given on a Sunday morning to a massive church of people who are trying to live out their Christian faith. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. So the only other thing I'll say by way of critiques is that um, I, I think that the way Stanley casts this in terms of straight disjunction is understandable to me, but also wrong and oversimplifying. So I think, and I'll explain more what I mean about this when we get to the the final part of our discussion where we assess kind of final thoughts. I think that it's more helpful to think about the church and Israel, the old and the new, in terms of fulfillment rather than disjunction. So it's not as though the old has been done away with entirely, but rather that the church is the fulfillment, Christ and the church are the fulfillment of everything that has come before. And so he does take those things and transforms them in ways. And, and we'll talk about exactly what that means here in a minute. So there is a disjunction. We're not ethnic members of Israel. We don't need to follow the law as detailed by Moses in, in the first five books of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that we should just discard them. Right. So anyway, so those were my main critiques. What did you see, Father Miles? All right. Yeah. Buckle your seatbelt, because I do think that as someone who's attempting to pastor a church um, and ironically, someone who's pastoring as an Anglican priest in a Lutheran church that tends to not have a high view of the law, this sermon just struck deep chords of, I can't believe this man said that. So we will get to positives. I did see some positives, but not many. So let's do some negatives. What my critiques, uh, he kept saying, oh, over and over and over again that the that the apostles, that they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible. There wasn't a biblicism among them. And I just thought this was so utterly strange because of course they had a Bible. And what was it, Andy Stanley? It was the Old Testament. It, it was it was the Hebrew scriptures or I mean, if you want to make an argument, it was the Greek version. It was the Septuagint. They, of course, had a Bible. And what did they call it? They called it God breathed. God breathed out the Old Testament. So every time he said the apostles didn't have a Bible, I wanted to throw the computer across the room because I was like, where are you getting this? And so he just had an incredibly bad theology of Scripture, in my opinion. He said that he, he made this claim that the apostles survived both the temple, meaning persecution by the original Jewish authorities, and the empire the Roman Empire, without a book in their hand. And I was like, what are you? All Paul does is quote from the Old Testament. 
And it's funny because in his very first sermon, Andy Stanley's first sermon, he gives his root of the fact that it's this apostolic kerygma, this this apostolic preaching, which is the root, not the scripture. And where does he go to find this? It's in Peter's sermon in Acts. And he very quickly, go back and listen to the sermon, people. He very quickly skips over the fact where Peter quotes two passages from the Old Testament. <laughs> like, I was like, how did you not see that Peter in his first sermon about the resurrection of Jesus quotes from the Old Testament? I just thought that that was incredibly ironic. So I think he presents it very wrong. Being educated in, in dispensationalist circles at Liberty. Tell, tell people what that is. So, so dispensationalism is the idea that scripture is split up into certain segments of history where God relates to people in different ways. So in the Old Testament, God relates to people uh, through the law, through the sacrificial system. So if you want to be saved and whatever that term means, uh, you would follow the law. Right. But then Jesus comes and he does away with the law and inaugurates a kind of new dispensation where now, after all this time, God finally relates to people through grace. And even then, they'll still parse very finely things like what happened when Jesus was alive isn't necessarily applicable to the church. So, for example, I know dispensationalists who say you shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer because that was for the apostles while Jesus was alive, not for the church. Or even the Sermon on the Mount. I've heard someone who was raised dispensationalist. This is Dr. Paul House. He's a professor at Beeson Divinity School. The way he was raised is that the Sermon on the Mount was for a failed dispensation that Jesus attempted to inaugurate, a kingdom on earth. And since it failed, he was crucified. It's no longer applicable to Christians. Now, Paul House does not believe this. He's a wonderful biblical scholar. Read him. He was raised that way. Isn't that that's crazy? That is crazy. But I do think one of the things dispensationalism does is it does downgrade our our view of the Old Testament's importance. So for me, just observing dispensational people in a dispensational community, one of the things that seemed prevalent to me, the Old Testament is good for messianic prophecy. And that's basically, and other than that, it's just a foil against the New Testament to show us how great we have it in the covenant of grace versus being in, under the covenant of law. Um, so anyway, so I, I can kind of understand where he's coming from. So so even a Stanley might say, well, yeah, Peter quotes from the Old Testament there as a means of showing how Christ fulfills prophecy, but not for anything more than that. All right. So that's a great segue to my next critique, which is his dispensational theology. It so pits the two covenants against each other in such a very unhealthy way that he even calls the new covenant a brand new covenant. Which, is, which I think is just simply false. Um, the new covenant is new, but it's a renewed covenant. And a, word, a basic word study on both the Hebrew word, it's Kadesh, and then the Greek word kainos, would, would lead you to realize that brand new is not a concept in these languages, that it's a renewed, a refreshed, an, an ongoing reality, but it is new. It's a new point in time. I mean, before Jesus died and rose again, the new covenant didn't exist. Behold, I do a new thing. But who's he doing the new thing among? 
and within and around. It's the old. So it's it's a transformation. And I think the most beautiful picture of this is actually kind of an allegorical reading, which the fathers would lend to us, of the transfiguration account, where Jesus goes up on the mountain and who appears? The old covenant principal figures, Moses who represents the law, Elijah who represents the prophets, and then Jesus is glowing and bright. He's transfiguring what comes before him. So as you said, I think the notion of fulfillment's way better of a of a con of a category of what Stanley is wish I I wish he was trying to say, but I'm not sure he is. And in essence, just the new covenant makes no sense apart from the old covenant. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. And when you cut out Israel, he's no longer a Messiah. He says the new covenant replaces the old covenant. And I would say, no, it fulfills it. Replacement is, I think you get into some dangerous ground when you go this route of replacement because replace can imply that God is going back on his word. Now, you have to nuance what you mean by replace. So here's some other things that he says that just blew me away. The old covenant and new covenant are incompatible as it relates to everything. Hey, what an all-encompassing, amazing statement to make. Whoa. B, how bogus. He even goes on to say that the Old Testament and New Testament are incompatible. And he uses the example of the violence versus love within St. Paul, right? Before he converts, he uses violence, which nowhere in scripture does it say he roots his violence in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus would probably critique him and the Pharisees for using violence because that's not the Old Covenant versus the man who wrote the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. The only difference Old Covenant versus New Covenant. And he was very, very, Andy Stanley, this is very clear to point out, Paul was being a faithful follower of the Old Covenant using violence. So what else does he say? He says, Paul let go of the temporary, sorry, he let go of the temporary covenant with Israel. And I just think this makes absolutely no sense of Paul's deep wrestlings of Romans 9 through 11. When I read Romans 9 through 11, I read a Jew who is in anguish and who is wrestling with the fact that his fellow Jews, to whom belong the covenants and the patriarchs and the promises, are not within the Messiah. And we can debate all day, and maybe that's future episode, where Israel and where all this stuff fits in. But to say that Paul just lets go of the temporary covenant with Israel is, I think, really bad theology. Does Paul see a fulfillment of Christ's death and resurrection of a covenant with Israel? <laughs> Absolutely. But let go? Yeah, that's that's rough. Uh, the Bible does not teach, listen to this, Andy Stanley said this, the Bible does not teach God loves everybody. The new covenant teaches God loves everybody. What in the flip is going on here? Uh, are we going to have to add an explicit... We are. Uh, We're going to have to add a bleep. We're going to have to get our editor, who's my wonderful wife, Liz, to bleep out some stuff because we're about to get real. I mean, I get... He, he goes on this long track about Jews were loved more than people, than the, than the Gentiles. And on and on he goes. And I'm like, what are you reading? What about the book of Jonah, where God's love is so manifested for these people of Nineveh? What about Exodus 19, where Israel's entire existence is to be love and grace to the whole world? What about Isaiah chapter 2, where all the nations will stream to Israel to know God? What about this, Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. Who? All people, not just Israel. A feast
taste of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Did God have a unique, special relationship with Israel? Of course. And one of the things Jesus critiques the Pharisees and the temple leaders of his day, he critiques them of taking this to an extreme and of not seeing that their uniqueness is meant to serve the nations. But I think Andy Stanley is taking a half-truth and pressing it further than it should have ever been pushed. God's love for all people is expressed in the Old Testament. So because of that, I think he gets a lot wrong about the what the Old Testament says and about what Jewish tradition says in the first tradition. He'll often say, as the law in Old Testament preaches, and I think what he means is the way the law was interpreted by Pharisees, which Jesus himself critiques. In the third sermon, he confesses, he confuses, sorry, the law of Moses with all the Old Testament at large. And so I think we have to do good exegetical homework to say, as you were saying earlier, Father Wesley, that there are certain laws in the Old Testament because of various reasons, and we don't have time to go into them, no longer apply to us. But to then throw out the prophets or the Psalms, what? That, that's just a, a very great example of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. He can't seem to differentiate the law code proper and, it's, and the morality universal, as you mentioned, that's rooted in God's word. And he places then the Christian morality in Jesus and Paul rather than the Old Testament. Okay, that sounds good at first. The problem is is that Old Testament morality isn't simply that, Old Testament morality. It's a morality rooted in God himself. God gives those commands in the Old Testament. He says the New Testament morality is new and better, and I think he seems to forget that Jesus quotes the Old Testament as the source for his morality. And so I think this, for me, was a huge critique of Stanley. He never comes around firmly to affirm that God was 100% behind the Old Testament. He will say it's divine. He'll say it's authoritative. But what does that mean if God also wrote it and is behind it? And so this leads, I think, to the idea of unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. I get what he's trying to do. He's trying to show that there's a disjunction between the old and new, as you talked about. I just think he does it so, so poorly and in such an unhelpful way. And so that leads to my final critique, which is a pastoral critique. As someone who's a pastor, I could never imagine preaching sermons like this because I couldn't imagine, A, that they're accomplishing what he set out to do. I don't think these sermons are going to have... No one's going to listen to these sermons who's on the fence of Christianity and go, oh, great. Well, if I can discard the whole Old Testament, I'll become a Christian. Not at all. I think he actually raises more questions than he does give answers. He may, I think he throws into question the entire character of God. And so he does nothing helpful to promote Christian morality. And in fact, this is what some other people have noted is this sermon paves the way for Protestant liberalism where sexual ethics can just be completely thrown out the window, which he more or less does in his sermon where he attempts to root sexual ethics in Jesus's commands or Paul really to be Christ to one another. He doesn't even say what that means. He doesn't even show what a sexual... Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) I'm hot under the collar right now. My gosh. That's right. Yes. And that means something even more when you're a priest if you're that hot does, yeah. well then okay so we've we've kind of aired our grievances we've critiqued we've sermon bashed we've become 
those people. Uh, but let's talk about some things that are positive, that kernels of truth that we can extract from what it is that Stanley is trying to do and uh, and think about, you know, ways that we might articulate those things perhaps with slightly more nuance. So uh, something for me that I thought he did well uh, is that his critique cuts against biblicism and fundamentalism's misappropriation of sola scriptura into solo scriptura. So what I mean by that is the idea that you can only ever look at Scripture, that you have to take things you know, to the letter of a literal interpretation, whatever the word literal means. That's one of my least favorite words, by the way, is the word literal. Uh, because what's l- a literal reading to a 21st century American uh, may not be the literal meaning that the author of a text was trying to convey in you know 800 BCE or something like that. So for Genesis 1 would be an example of that. It right. is not a scientific explanation of what happened in the seven days of creation. It is a poem, uh, and I, we can talk more about what exactly that means at maybe at a different episode, but it's it's an artistic kind of recreation of, cre- of creation. Uh, and so, you know, to approach it like a science textbook is just the wrong way to do it. But to many, that's what the word literal means. So... Yeah, I think we confuse the word literal, which just means taking a text as it wishes to be read, right? You read poems different than you read a phone book, but you would read them both literally, meaning you do what they tell you to do. We use that word literal when we really mean literalistic. And I think that a lot of people approach scripture literalistic. I read the Bible literally, but I think that means when I get to Revelation, I don't actually think a dragon's going to come out of the sea with 10 heads and all these horns, but I'm reading John literally. I'm not reading him literalistically. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's important. It's an important distinction. In fact, David Billy Hart has an essay called Ad Literam in uh, an old issue of First Things that's worth reading on that very point. Um, so he, so I think what Stanley does well is he he's trying to shift away from that approach to scripture, refocusing it on this kind of apostolic kerygma, which I think is really important. And I think growing up, I didn't really hear that, at least that term thrown around much. Maybe the idea were similar, but um, but I think it is important for us to recover this idea of apostolic kerygma, of pronouncing the gospel based on the resurrection. You know, I, I mean, I think that's all very true and good. Um, so I like what he does that. I, I like his argumentation as an appeal to the early church. Um, though I don't think he's always particularly faithful in his methodology of doing that. For example, there's one point in the sermon where he specifically says, baptism as a means of proclaiming a faith that you have or something like that, which, of course, for us is problematic because, you know, like when we baptize an infant, the, the 28 prayer book reads, this child now being made regenerate. You know, the, the baptism is the moment where one joins the church. And so uh, so obviously he kind of picks and chooses early church uh, tradition as far as what he finds palatable versus what he doesn't. But nevertheless, the impulse that the earlier Christians have a closer grasp of apostolic teaching is something that's true and good, and we should affirm that impulse, even if the way he articulates some of those other things is wrong. Um, and in fact, that was one of the big things that brought me into becoming Anglican, realizing that there were people who wrote, like Polycarp, who knew John the Apostle and was trained by John the Apostle, and then Irenaeus was trained by Polycarp. And we have the writings and testimonies of these guys, so we can go back to them, and I think that's important for us to do. Um, He also rightly characterizes the Mosaic Covenant as an ethnocentric temporal covenant of means 
while the new covenant is a universal and everlasting covenant for all people. He's right, and we can parse this out maybe at a later time, when he says that the Old Testament largely tells a story of God working through the Jews and that that through the Jews part is over, I don't really like that wording, but at the same time, I can I can be on board with a lot of what he means by that. Um, you know, this idea that Israel was a vehicle by which Christ was delivered to all people. You know, the Abrahamic covenant has this this idea of being a blessing to all nations. Well, where is that blessing located? It's located in Christ, not in our, and this might be controversial to some people, not in our orientation towards a political state in the Middle East that we call Israel, but rather towards our orientation towards Christ. That's where blessing and cursing is ultimately fulfilled, is is in our orientation in that way. And so I think he provides pushback against a kind of Judaizing tendency that I've found has been more common in the church than I thought. This past summer, I was working at a homeschool conference, and I saw a man who had some books in Hebrew, and I thought he must be a seminary student. So I went over and talked to him and I said, Hey, I, I noticed your, your books are in Hebrew or are you at, in seminary? And he said, Oh no, no, no. My family and I just decided that we were going to start keeping Torah. Okay. I mean, that's fine. But have you read the book of Galatians? Uh, I had a friend who gave, who wore tassels and wouldn't shave his beard and uh, gave a presentation at, at a conference on uh, Jew, on early Christian attitudes towards the temple, very much arguing for a kind of Judaizing uh, idea that the church really considered themselves to be Jewish um, and that it was Constantine who ruined the church later on. And a professor in the Q&A afterwards asked him, well, what have you done with the book of Galatians? And he said, oh, well, I haven't read it lately. So I think there is an impulse towards Judaizing that is more prevalent in evangelicalism than may be uh, evident on, on the surface. And I think that impulse in evangelicalism is because people desire a rich, thick community with ritual. And when you have discarded the Catholic faith, the rituals, the liturgy, the sacraments, and you know in your mind, oh, I can't do all that. That's Catholic, Roman Catholic. Then you cling to something else. And there is this sense in which, well, these are the rituals, the traditions that Jesus would have done, which this is for another episode. It's not true. There, a lot of these things are medieval uh, Judaism. Judaism's developed uh, just as much over 2,000 years as, as Christianity has. And so these are your traditions, the liturgy, the, the sacraments, the rituals of the church. Come home to those, not uh, find your home in what you believe is kind of a quasi-first century Judaism that makes you closer to Jesus. And yesterday I, I read a really interesting book by uh, Paul Zoll, who's an Anglican. He's very reformed, and definitely we would have some disagreements on certain things. But it's called The First Christian, Universal Truth and the Teachings of Jesus. And one of the arguments that he makes, and I think this is also related to that Judaizing impulse, is that there's a tendency in scholarship lately to place Jesus and Paul firmly within Judaism. So like the new perspective on Paul or even the Paul within Judaism movement. Um, and the quest for the historical Jesus, which very much roots Jesus in the Second Temple Judaistic picture of his day, uh, and both of which have a lot of truth in them. But Zal's argument is that they so cement Jesus in his particularity that it loses the universal. And I think that that really is a tendency that people have. And so we need to recover this kind of cosmic Christ, a Colossians 1 and 2 version of Christ, uh, not to be pitted against 
the Gospels or other depictions of Christ in the New Testament, but to complement them, to show that this scandal of particularity, which E.L. Maskell, the great Anglo-Catholic theologian, writes so articulately about, Christ took on a Jewish body in a Jewish culture at a particular time and space, but he is the savior of all people everywhere, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, uh, he's for you. And there's a universality there. So at the end of the day, this is why maybe I'm a little, feel a little more friendly to Stanley perhaps than you do, Father Miles, is also out of a pastoral impulse of seeing this kind of Judaizing happening in the church and feeling very much as though uh, we need to do a better job of of articulating uh, what Catholic Christianity is and how we should relate to figures like the Apostle Paul and Christ himself. All right, let me give a few positives. So I think that, as Father Wesley's already mentioned, I don't think he's wrong about the idea of events as uh, slash kerygma being as uh, being the foundation of the faith, that we should understand that what makes the church is the gospel, the event of the death and resurrection of Christ. And I think if you're looking for a book of how that works out within an Anglican or even Anglo-Catholic setting, I would point you towards Michael Ramsey's, Archbishop Michael Ramsey's book, The Gospel and the Catholic Church, of how the structure of the church, particularly the episcopacy and the gospel message, they they are in conversation with each other, and that together they make this beautiful picture of the church, and that the scriptures are then the witnesses and the apostolic testimony of that event. And so, yeah, I think it's right. Your view of creation slash evolution doesn't make or break the faith. You know, was Job a real person or not? In the end, I can see myself saying, who cares? Christ is risen. That's the message of salvation. But I think Stanley goes really far in that direction. Uh, Another positive, I think that he really does bring out a point that we need to be giving answers against kind of pop level negative apologetics of atheists, right? I mean, I think that I've had to deal with this in my own congregation of kids finding these YouTube videos of someone like Dawkins or Sam Harris, and they feel that their faith is crumbling. And maybe that's just the way life is, where kids hear something new, and we live in a culture of suspicion, and so it's going to hurt their faith for a second. I just think we as clergy, as youth ministers, as people in the church, just need to be prepared to pat them on the back and say, it's okay. I've heard it too. You're going to like, just kind of scoff at it the idea and move them along and say, okay, this is a phase. But I think Andy Stanley's actually responding against something within the youth, the next generation that is going on. I I agree with you, Wes, that once you, I mean, I don't think a strong Christian listens to these people and stays awake at night. It's pretty, um, even he gives some quotes from these guys and they're pretty laughable of anyone who's done serious biblical studies, but a 15-year-old hasn't. I think also another positive is that uh, he gets the Council of Jerusalem more or less right, that the Council of Jerusalem sets apart these dietary restrictions on Gentiles, and really they're dietary concessions for the sake of unity. Jews will not have table fellowship with Gentiles, and they know at this point in history— Ask the Gentiles to abstain from blood, meat sacrificed to idols, etc., etc., because if you're polluted, a Jew can't have dinner with you. And if a Jew can't have dinner with you, what does this mean? You all can't come to the Eucharist. It's about purity 
or we maybe we'd say cleanness in this Old Testament sense. But I think even the apostles at this time are recognizing that those institutions are passing away. So I think Andy's on to something here. However, even in the midst of this discussion, I think he commits his most grievous error. And that is part of one of those restrictions that the Council of Jerusalem places upon Gentiles is not a dietary restriction, but a moral restriction about sexual ethics. Abstain from sexual immorality is what James says at the Council of Jerusalem. Oh man, and I think Andy Stanley just gets this all wrong. He 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 sounds very antinomian. He says that they are not rooting their sexual ethic at all in the Old Testament. Hey, that's an ungrounded claim. Where did he get that? I don't know. It's the again, it's this disjunction, uh, disjunctive view of the Old and New Testaments. He says it's all rooted in Paul's preaching. And what was Paul's sexual ethic? Treat others as Christ has treated you. Love one another as Christ has loved you. I just don't see how Paul would then not be having an Old Testament sexual ethic. I just don't see how that leads to Paul saying in Romans chapter 1, condemning harshly homosexuality, or where in 1 Corinthians, he condemns a man who sleeps with his mother-in-law. Like, he's rooting this in something else. I just think that Andy opens the way here for an antinomian, which is do whatever you want to do, Christianity, and ultimately liberal Protestantism's view of sexuality. I think if I were someone sitting in the pew or chairs, they don't have pews because that architecture uh, is a stumbling block to people, apparently. If you're sitting in a chair at Andy Stanley's church and I heard this sermon and I was a immature Christian or a, a baby Christian, I would walk away from this going homosexuality and sex outside of marriage are okay. Well, thank you for providing your positives. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, It's was... funny that you mentioned that, though, because Rod Drake... So when this uh, sermon series first came out, Wesley Hill, uh, in First Things, wrote a response, uh, basically accusing uh, Stanley of being a Marcionite. We'll talk about that again in a second. And then Rod Dreher supported... Uh, Wesley Hill's argument in the American Conservative, and he had an article titled uh, Moral Therapeutic Marcionism, and basically said, mark my words, in 10 years, Andy Stanley's church is going to be an affirming congregation where they've done away with traditional Christian sexual ethics. So we'll see if Dreher and Hill are right as far as whether or not he's clearing the way for that to happen later on. It would be interesting, it would be tragic if that's the case, um, if he uses his arguments for that purpose. Uh, So now comes the point where we answer the question, is Stanley a Marcionite heretic or an expositor of Paul? So what we mean by a Marcionite heretic, Marcion was one of the first heretics uh, that the church had to argue against. uh, And he taught that the God presented in the Old Testament and in portions of the Gospels is not the same God that Paul is writing about in his letters and that Jesus represents. That the father of Jesus is a different God than Yahweh of the Old Testament. Yes. Yahweh of the Old Testament is a demiurge. He's a, he's a, he's like a Greco-Roman God. He's kind of in the creation. He's not outside of it. Um, he, he very much acts like a personified, larger, but just as whiny human. Um, and so he's a bad guy. Uh, but the good guy is the father of Jesus. And so what Marcion did is really write the first Jefferson Bible. He cut out the Old Testament. He cut out large portions of the Gospels. He cut out all the epistles he didn't like. And basically, he was left with a few parts of Luke and 10 Pauline epistles. Um, And now, 
uh, fun fact, I, one of the favorite quotes that I, we talked about in my class at Neshota House on Paul was that Marcion was the only second, Christ, second century Christian who understood Paul, and he didn't understand Paul. I don't remember who said it. It was a German scholar in the 1900s, but I thought that was pretty funny. And then again, another reason why I feel a little bit, um, I guess, more friendly to Stanley. So was Stanley a Marcionite heretic, or was he um, an expositor of Paul? And I'm going to say he's somewhere in the middle, uh, but that I would avoid calling him a heretic. I don't think he creates a framework where you have to believe some sort of two Pauls. Perhaps I'm being too generous and doing too much work for him. I don't think he makes the I don't think he makes the argument that the Old Testament is uncredible or pointless, but rather that it just doesn't apply in its in its forms of obligation and imperative to the modern Christian. Um, and again, I think you're, I think the more accurate critique is that it's antinomianism that he might get into. But I do think that there's something about the book of Galatians, particularly I'm thinking kind of towards the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, for freedom you have been set free is Paul's argument here. Um, and, and so I think there is something to be said in his impulse that grounds him in a Pauline understanding of the Old Testament even if I don't quite agree with the way that he says things, Stanley, that is, I like the way Paul says things. But uh, so, so I would say he's not a Marcionite heretic. He's in the middle somewhere. I think his views just need some correcting and some nuancing. I think if he got away from the dispensationalism, maybe it would be a little more tolerable. So I think he's in the middle. Father Miles? Yeah, wow. Uh, you're very gracious and probably wrong. So I think that, <laughs> of course, Stanley is not articulating a classical Marcionism, but I think he comes close when he says that the Old Testament is all about judgment and violence and the New Testament is all about love and forgiveness. The only next logical step to make is it's two different gods giving two different commands. But he almost paints the picture that God radically changes his mind or is capricious in the Old Testament and not in the New. I mean, this is, this is Marcionism warmed over, in my opinion. I mean, when he says Christianity is not Judaism 2.0, it is a standalone, say goodbye to the past, new thing. That is, that is such a poor and dangerous theology that I just think doesn't carefully evaluate the nuances of Jesus, Peter, Paul, James at the Council of Jerusalem, I, I think he's trying to wrestle with Paul and the radicalness of Jesus's work. But so was Marcion. Both were trying to be expositors of Paul. So maybe our categories are even wrong. Marcion was an expositor of Paul. Andy Stanley was an expositor of Paul. And they both stray far from the truth because I think Andy Stanley seems reluctant to admit that the God wrote or inspired the Old Testament. And he simply chalks up all the weird stuff of the Old Testament to a different Jewish worldview. I find him to be, if not heretical, standing on the edge, wishing he could jump. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, to close, I figured I'd read a quote from the great Anglo-Catholic writer Vernon Staley, whose book, The Catholic Religion, is a very important, I think, for recovering a kind of view of Anglo-Catholicism that, that can be relevant in a way that speaks to modern issues. And so he speaks of how the New Testament and the Old Testament are related in terms of fulfillment, again, rather than disjunction. And I think this is kind of the vision that, as Anglo-Catholics, we should have moving forward, and I think a nice way to wrap this discussion to a close. So here's what Vernon Staley says. He says, the prophecies, types, and figures of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ himself and the Christian church. The revelation of the Old Testament is completed in that of the New Testament. The old sacrifices are fulfilled in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on Calvary and its continual application in the Holy Eucharist. The moral law in the Ten Commandments is perfected and raised to a higher meaning by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount and made binding upon Christian people. The priesthood is summed up and perfected in Christ, the great high priest, and continued in the Christian ministry. The hereditary descent of the sons of Aaron finding its counterpart in the spiritual descent of apostolic secession. The royal priesthood of the Jewish nation finds its expression in the lay priesthood of the Christian church. The sacrament of holy baptism takes the place of the rite of circumcision and the holy Eucharist of the Jewish Passover. The fasts and festivals of the Jewish church make way for those of the Christian church, whilst the Jewish Sabbath passes into the Christian Sunday. In short, the old church was absorbed in the new, and the Jewish religion filled with new meaning and endowed with new powers through the coming of God in the flesh and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost passed into the Catholic religion. So I think a helpful way to end our discussion and, and rightly framing that relationship between old and new, not entirely disjunctive, but one finds its place in the other. So now comes the point in the show where we talk about what are we into. So Father Miles, what are you into lately? Right. So I am actually into a new podcast, one that I'm producing solo. It's called the Tole Lege podcast. Tole Lege is a Latin phrase that means pick up and read. And it comes from uh, St. Augustine and his confessions. You can listen to the first episode of the podcast to find out kind of the reason behind the podcast, why Tole Lege, and the purpose of the podcast, which really is to just discuss books of a theological nature. There's going to be a wide range of books discussed. Uh, the goal is just to have people talking about theology and books because I've come to a point of realizing, as I say in the first episode, people, especially clergy, just aren't reading. We should all be reading. Reading is good. Put down your phones, put down the, your computers, put down Netflix, Hulu, Tole Lege. Pick up a book and read. And so you can find uh, that podcast on any podcast platform. Nice. I like how you work the self-promotion into the what are we into. That's good. So what I'm into lately is a book called Miss Lonely Hearts by Nathaniel West. I have my uh, my reading list set up into different categories. So I have about 50 books at a time on my to read list. And one of those sections is classics. But I, I've read being classically educated and a seminary graduate. I've read a lot of classics from the ancient world and even up through, you know, the Victorian area era and even early America. 
American lit. So I wanted to be a little more familiar with modern literature. So it's Harold Bloom's list of classic books that I'm going through, but I'm going through them in the reverse order, starting with the most recent. So Nathaniel West's book, Miss Lonely Hearts, was one of the first ones on there. So I decided to read that. And it's about a, a columnist in a newspaper uh, for a kind of advice column. You know, Miss the all the lonely hearts can uh, send their uh, send their questions into him and, and how he has to take on their burdens. He becomes much like a Christ figure. Um, and there is a sort of Satan figure. So the book is kind of a retelling of Paradise Lost set in the post-World War One era. Um, so it's very interesting, uh, kind of a dark comedy. There are definitely some interesting parts about it, and I'm, I'm still processing through it, but I really enjoyed reading it, and it's short enough I read it in almost a sitting or two. Um, so anyways, so Miss Lonely Hearts by Nathaniel West, that's what I'm into. Well, we're so glad that you joined us today. If you like what we're doing, make sure you follow us on social media. Feel free to email us with any concerns, comments, or complaints. Um, and, uh, and Father Miles, would you give us a, a blessing? May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.